There are two kinds of people in the world. There are those who read the instructions and those who don't. (laughs) When you're putting together a toy or assembling a piece of furniture from Ikea (laughs) or installing a, a new appliance... How many of you read the instructions? We're going to do this step by step. We're going to do it right. We're going to do it once. Amen. Those are the godly ones. And then how many of you, you just figure it can't be that hard. I'll figure it out. We'll just do it. And if I hit a wall, then I'll read the instructions. Okay? How many of you? See, I'll pray for you. I pray for you. Two kinds of people. Do you ever wish that life came with an instruction manual? Because, boy, life is crazy. Life is short. Life is hard. Life is complicated. People are crazy. Don't you ever wish that there was a marriage manual, let alone parenting? If kids came with an owner's manual, that would be super helpful. Well, the good news is we do have something of an owner's manual. God has given us his word. Our creator, the one who created the earth and all that is in it, the one who made us, the one who knows what makes us tick, the one who, who, who knows what will help us and what will hurt us, in his goodness and love and grace, he has given us his word, the Bible. Now, the Bible is more than an instruction manual, but it does include helpful instructions on how to make life work, especially in the book of Proverbs. Now, again, the Bible is more than that, uh, but the Bible is that. And there's more instruction in the Bible than the book of Proverbs, but the book of Proverbs is a great place to start. And in the book of Proverbs, we have God's wisdom, God's God's instructions on how to make life work. So today, we begin a a new series of messages from the Old Testament book of Proverbs. And today, I just want to introduce you to the book, or introduce the book to you. In a land far, far away, and in a time long, long ago, I went to seminary. And in seminary, I got frustrated with the professors, because I would be in a class, an exegesis class, which was a, a whole course on studying and interpreting a book of the Bible. So whatever class it was, but in this exegesis class, the professor would spend the first days, if not weeks, on introductory matters, preliminary matters. He would go on and on and on about the historical context, what was going on in the Bible Bible world, the world of the Bible at that time, the time and the history and the setting. Then he'd go on and on about authorship and who wrote this and arguments for this author, arguments against that author, maybe this guy wrote it, arguments for and against. And then he'd talk about textual matters and interpretation matters and, and themes and the outline, and we'd go on forever and ever. And in my youthful exuberance and ignorance, I would think, you know, when are we going to study the Bible and quit talking about it? You know, let's, let's get into the Word around here. What are we doing? I did not appreciate the value of preparation. Now I do. There is great value in getting ready to study what you're about to study. So that's what we're going to do this morning. At the risk of frustrating you, I want to prepare you for what we're about to study, to prepare you to study the book of Proverbs, not just in our series of messages, but in your own reading, where you can pick up the Bible and and have some proverbial wisdom to wisely interpret and understand and use the book of Proverbs in your own life. So I can tell you right off the bat, this is going to be a weird sermon. I know what you're thinking. Brother Jeff, all your sermons are weird. You ain't wrong. (laughs) But this is going to be weirder than usual, very academic, very classroomy, but... 
there's a method to the madness, and I pray that you'll find value as we get ready to study the book of Proverbs. And uh, if you're a first-time guest with us today, I'm telling you right now, it's a weird sermon. This ain't normal. It's weird. So here we go. If you have your bulletin, there's a listening guide on the back panel. So as we prepare for the book of Proverbs, let's start, first of all, with wisdom literature. In your Bible, in the Old Testament, there are five books that are typically categorized as wisdom literature. It's It's a genre of literature on its own. It has its own distinctive characteristics. But the five books of wisdom literature in your Old Testament are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Psalms, or the Song of Solomon. So those are the five. You can jump over to the New Testament, we can add the book of James to that list as well. But those five books in the Old Testament, those are the, the books of wisdom, wisdom literature. Wisdom literature in the Bible asks the question, how can I live the best life possible? That's, that's the question on the table in Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. How can I live the best life possible? That's a good question, isn't it? That's a timeless question. People have been asking that question for thousands of years. I'm asking that question. I want to know, how can I live the best life possible? Because you only get one, and man, it's short. <laughs> so how can I live the best life possible? Now here's the genius of God's Word. Those five books in the Old Testament, those five wisdom books, tackle that question in five different ways and from five different angles. Isn't the Bible amazing? The book of Job. The book of Job uses the method of disputation, that is to say arguments. The book of Job is just a big fuss. (laughs) You have Job and his friends, and they just go around the table just arguing with each other. It's an argumentation. It's disputation. That's the method And the book of Job deals with the question, how can I live the best life possible in light of suffering? Because bad things happen to all people. Not just good people, not just bad people. Bad things happen in every life. How do I live the best life possible in light of suffering? Then we have Psalms. Well, Psalms is in a category by itself. It's kind of a sub-genre. The book of Psalms is is itself a sub-genre. But but in Psalms, we have the, the method of songs. Song lyrics, psalms. And these psalms are used in the context of worship. We sing these songs to God or we sing these songs about God. And psalms ask the question, how can I live the best life possible in light of worship? Or how does life inform my worship? How worship and life go together. Psalms. And again, it's a, it's a whole can of worms all by itself. And then we have Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes uses the method of reflection. Here's an older man looking back over his life. That's the method. And the the theme of Ecclesiastes is how can I find joy and meaning in life in light of death? Because the writer of Ecclesiastes, he is tore up about death. Everybody dies. Rich people die, poor people die. The smart people die, the dumb people die. Righteous die, the wicked die. Everybody dies. So how do I find joy and meaning? How can I live my best life possible in light of death? That's Ecclesiastes. We have the Song of Songs. The Song of Songs is love poetry, celebrating the romantic love between a man and a woman. And then we have our subject, Proverbs. Proverbs is an anthology, a collection, or a collection of collections of Proverbs 
that bring wisdom to everyday living. So that's the, these, these five books in the Old Testament that answer that question, how do I live the best life possible? How, how to make life work? Now, that brings us to the book of Proverbs itself. So there's the wisdom literature in the Bible. Proverbs is one of those five books of wisdom, wisdom for everyday living. Now, let's look at the book of Proverbs. We start, first of all, with our author. In Proverbs 1.1, it says this, The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Now, if you know Bible history or know much about the Bible, you know Solomon is the son of David. David was the second king of Israel. Saul was the first. Uh, David was a man after God's own heart. Solomon is his son. And Solomon, when Solomon became king, God, God offered Solomon the opportunity of a lifetime. Solomon, whatever you want, you ask, it, you ask me and it's yours. Well, Solomon didn't ask for money. He didn't ask for fame. He didn't ask for military victory. Instead, he asked for wisdom. Oh, God, give me wisdom that I might lead your people well. Give me wisdom. And this so pleased God that God said, since that's what you asked for, I'm going to give you wisdom like nobody's ever seen wisdom before. I'm going to give you wisdom. And since you didn't ask for money, I'm going to give you money. And since you didn't ask for fame, I'm going to give you fame. And since you didn't ask for victory, I'm going to give you victory, all that. That's just free because you didn't ask for that like everyone else does. And I'm going to give you wisdom like no one's ever seen before. If you would, go with me to 1 Kings. Hang on to Proverbs in 1 Kings chapter 4. In 1 Kings 4 and verse 29. 1 Kings 4, 29. Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men. Then Ethan, the Ezraite, Haman, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was known in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were a thousand and five. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. Men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon, from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So he has this divine gift of wisdom. And he, he doesn't just have a Ph.D. specializing in one subject field. He has a wide breadth of knowledge. He is wise. He speaks over 3,000 proverbs. Now, in Ecclesiastes, the writer of Ecclesiastes is technically anonymous. The writer never does say, my name's Jeff, nice to meet you, you know, I come from. He doesn't say that. He calls himself the preacher, the Koheleth, the preacher. If we take the preacher to be Solomon, and I do, that's the traditional view and there's no reason to doubt it. So if we take the preacher to be Solomon, this makes sense. In Ecclesiastes 12, 9, again, another one of those wisdom books. This is that reflection. Here's an older Solomon looking back over his life, I believe. But in Ecclesiastes 12, 9, in addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. And he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. Huh. The preacher sought to find delightful words and write words of truth correctly. That's somebody who writes down Proverbs and wisdom writings. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. So, our author is primarily Solomon. Most of the Proverbs in the book of Proverbs are attributed to King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived short of Jesus Christ. But they're not all 
Solomon's. There are also Proverbs that are sayings of the wise men, whoever they are. We also have a man named Augur in Lemuel, and we don't know who they are either. But so there are other Proverbs that get added to the collection, but Solomon, for the most part, is our author. What about the purpose? Well, let's take a look. What is the purpose of the book of Proverbs? Well, let's go back to Proverbs 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction. Here's why you have this book in your Bible. So you might know wisdom and instruction to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. A wise man will hear an increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. Now, we're not going to drill down deep into those verses this morning, but here's the point. The whole purpose of Proverbs is to impart heavenly wisdom for everyday living. This, this, is, this is heavenly wisdom, wisdom from above, wisdom from our maker, the creator of heavens and earth. It's heavenly wisdom for everyday living, just everyday living. Proverbs applies the principles of knowing God in a covenant relationship to everyday life situations and decisions. Taking the principles of knowing God and applying those principles to everyday life, everyday situations. In other words, here's how to make life work. The book of Proverbs tells you, here's how you make life work. It is the art of success, successful living. How to live a, a skilled, successful life. The art of successful living. How to make life work. That's the whole purpose of the book. We can say the theme of the book or the key verse, the verse that, I mean, it, it unlocks the whole book is chapter 1 and verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. That kind of unlocks the whole book. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that's a whole sermon right there. We'll come back to that later on. But that's the key verse. Now, to save space on the listening guide and to save time in the sermon, I'm not going to go through an outline of the book or the structure of the book. Suffice it to say that chapters 1 through 9 are kind of introductory. In chapters 1 through 9, we have a father talking to his son. And basically, this father is telling his son, Son, as you go into life, you're going to want some wisdom. <laughs> You're going to need wisdom. Wisdom is valuable. Wisdom will help you. You're going, to, you're going to want some wisdom. You need wisdom. That's kind of the first nine chapters. It's a commercial for wisdom and for the rest of the book of Proverbs. Now, from chapter 10 on, we have collections of Proverbs. And, uh, and if you have a good study Bible, the introductory material in your study Bible will tell you kind of an outline how those collections break down and so forth. But, so we have nine chapters of introduction, a commercial for the rest of the book, and then you have these collections of Proverbs. So that's the, that's the structure. Now, let's talk about Proverbs itself, the types of Proverbs and so forth. A good textbook definition of Proverbs, of a proverb, is a pithy, memorable observation of, of, of life that are generally true. That's, that's a good textbook definition of Proverbs. Proverbs are pithy, they're short, they're brief, memorable, easy to pack and take with you. Pithy, memorable 
observations of life that are generally true. A Spanish novelist named Cervantes described a, a, a proverb as a short sentence based on long experience. <laughs> a short sentence based on long experience. They are memorable slices of truth. Here's how the world tends to work. Here's how life tends to plan out. Now, we have Proverbs in the book of Proverbs, duh. We also have Proverbs in the Bible that are not in the book of Proverbs, but then there are also Proverbs that are not in the Bible. I mean, every culture has Proverbs. We have Proverbs in our culture that are not in the Bible. You know these. For example, a rolling stone, you know the difference. What's the rest? Gathers no moss. A rolling stone gathers no moss. That's a proverb. A pithy, memorable observation of life that is generally true. A rolling stone gathers no moss. In other words, you ought to keep busy. Keep busy, keep moving, stay active, move or die. You can't just sit still and do nothing for all your life. A rolling stone gathers no moss. Here's another one. Don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. That's a proverb. It's not in the Bible, but it's an old proverb. It's a little bit of wisdom. Every situation, you got good and you got the bad. Well, throw out the good, uh, throw out the bad, but you don't have to throw out the good too. You just try to keep the good. Don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Here's another one: a penny saved is a penny earned. Again, not in the Bible, but it's a good little. It's a life observation that proves generally true. A penny saved is a penny earned. It's tempting just to spend it all. It's easy to spend it all, but if you can do the work of saving it, well, you basically earned it. You ought to save some. Or you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. You can tell people what they need to do, and you can show them how to do it, but you can't make them do it. <laughs> or an apple a day keeps the doctor away. The early bird gets the worm. See, these are proverbs. So we have proverbs outside the Bible. We have proverbs inside the Bible. Pithy, memorable observations of life that prove generally true. Now, in the book of Proverbs, there are three kinds of Proverbs I want you to be on the watch out for. You'll see three different kinds. One would be descriptive, descriptive Proverbs. A descriptive proverb describes. <laughs> it describes how life works. For example, I'll show you a couple of these. Go to Proverbs 15.1. Descriptive proverbs describe how life works, generally speaking. In Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. That's a... That's a pithy, memorable observation. That's how life tends to work. If you are hateful, you're probably going to get treated hatefully. If you are rude, you're probably going to get some rudeness back your direction. However, a gentle answer turns away wrath. Many times you can change the whole tenor and tone if you'll give a gentle answer. Or in Proverbs 16, move over to chapter 16 and verse 24. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Word of kindness, a word of encouragement, a word of appreciation. It's like medicine. It's sweet as honey and it's medicine to the soul. Proverbs chapter 10, Proverbs 10 and verse 4. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Generally speaking, that's how it will work. If you're a hard worker and a good worker and you know what you're doing, 
you probably prosper in your work. On the other hand, if you're careless, you couldn't care less, and you're sloppy or you're lazy, you're probably not going to succeed in, in business. Generally speaking, that's how it's probably going to pan out. That's a memorable observation of life. So that's descriptive, how life tends to work. Then there are prescriptive proverbs. Prescriptive, think of prescription. Your doctor prescribes you some medicine and tells you how to take that medicine. Prescriptive proverbs tell you what to do or what not to do. They prescribe. It's a prescription. You really don't want to do this kind of a thing. Here's what will happen. You really want to try to do this sort of thing. Here's what will happen. So there's an encouragement in some ways or discouragement in others. For example, you get a lot of this in the first nine chapters. Remember, dad's talking to his son. Son, better do this, better do that. And there's a lot of imperative verbs where this father is telling his son, do this, don't do that. You get a lot of that in chapters 1 through 9. For example, in chapter 1 and verse 8, chapter 1, 8, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without cause. Then he goes on and lists all these things bad company might want to tempt you to do. He says in verse 16, For their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed blood. Indeed, it's useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird. But they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. So here's dad telling his son, Son, you better watch out for the bad company. When they try to encourage you to do bad things, when they are enticing you into a life of crime, don't go with them. You'll destroy yourself. So that's a prescriptive proverb. And then there are comparative proverbs. Comparative proverbs. This is better than that. <laughs> better X than Y. And there's about 20, 20, 20, about two dozen of these or so. For example, in Proverbs 15 and verse 7. Proverbs 15 and verse 7. Excuse me, no, 17. Proverbs 15, 17. Better is a dish of vegetables... Where love is than a fattened ox served with hatred. What does that mean? It's better to have the veggie tray <laughs> for supper, where, where where you have love, or, or than to have a fattened ox. Think ribeye steak. Than to have a ribeye steak served with hatred. Now, in these better than these comparative proverbs, usually you have two less than ideal situations. And that's pretty honest because life is usually not ideally situated, right? There's usually something wrong. I'd rather have a ribeye steak where love is. No, that's not an option. You can either have the vegetable plate and have love with it, or you can have the ribeye steak served with hatred. Well, out of those two less than ideal situations, I guess I'd rather have the veggies with love. Or along those same lines in Proverbs 17 and verse 1. Proverbs 17.1, better is a dry morsel. Think a saltine cracker. <laughs> better is a dry morsel and quietness with it than a house full of feasting with strife. Would you, have, would you rather have peanut butter and crackers for supper in a nice quiet house and everybody's getting along, or you want to have a Thanksgiving feast and everybody's fussing and fighting? Huh. Well, I'd rather have Thanksgiving feast where everybody's getting along, but that's not on the option. That's not on the menu. So out of these two less than ideal situations, this is better than that. Or here's one you ought to underline in your Bible. It's a great one. Here's a life verse. This will guide you. In Proverbs 21 and verse 9. Proverbs 21, 9. 
It is better to live in a corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. I, I heard that amen. I got one at 832. I won't tell you who said it. Better to live... Now, I'd rather not live in an attic, rather not live with a contentious woman, but out of these two less than ideal situations, you're better off in the attic. You know, Comparative. So two less than ideal situations, well, this is better than that. So those are three kinds of Proverbs. Now, let's get down to business. Here's really the thrust of the message this morning. Let me give you some proverbial wisdom. How to wisely understand and use the Proverbs, the book of Proverbs in your life. So proverbial wisdom, how to interpret Proverbs wisely, correctly. So now we're getting down to business. Here we go. All Proverbs are true and inspired. This is the Word of God. It is in your Bible. This isn't the farmer's almanac. This is God's Word. All Scripture is God-breathed. The New Testament tells us that. All Scripture is God-breathed. It is true. It is inspired. But Proverbs are not absolute promises. They are true, they are inspired, but they are not absolute promises. They are, by definition, Proverbs. Pithy, memorable observations of how life tends to work. They are Proverbs. They're true and inspired, but they're not absolute promises. Rick Byerjohn put it this way, Proverbs are not promises, they are probabilities. They teach probable truth, not absolute truth. They're, by definition, Proverbs. They teach general principles and patterns of conduct that, that, that this is how things tend to work out in life. General principles and patterns of conduct that, that when followed, lead they have the highest probabilities of success. But they're not rock-rib promises. They're pithy, they're memorable, they're brief, so they're easy to pack and take with you. But they're not rock-solid, absolute promises in every situation. For example... Let's go back to chapter 10 and verse 4. We, we talked about this a minute ago. In chapter 10 and verse 4. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Generally speaking, if you are careful with your work, you do a good job and you work hard, you, 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 you probably do well for yourself. Generally speaking, if you are sloppy, lazy, careless, you probably won't do too well for yourself. Now, is that always absolutely the truth? No, it doesn't always work out that way. Life's not that easy. There, there always have been and there still are people who work extremely hard and they barely eke out a living. And there are other folks who are quite lazy and they're quite comfortable, especially in the United States. That's another sermon. Or in Proverbs 13:4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. That's a general truth, general observation, but it's not absolutely true every single time. Let me show you another one. This will burst your bubble. Sacred cows make the best hamburger. Proverbs 26, or excuse me, 22. Proverbs 22, verse 6. You've heard this one. Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. You've heard that, right? It's a proverb. That's generally true. It's a probability. If you raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, you bring them to church, you teach them the things of God, you live out your faith in front of them, you do everything you can to instill your faith in them, probabilities are 
they will hang on to that faith. They'll grow into that faith and they'll carry that faith with them. But that's not a rock rib promise. It's not a guarantee. Just read the Bible. The Bible's got all kinds of prodigals. You can read all day, every day about saints who raise sinners and sinners who raise saints in the Bible. We know this by personal observation. You've seen it or maybe you've lived it. Where you see godly parents who have raised their kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and then when they are, when they are grown up, they, they, go a, they go in the opposite direction. They reject the church, they reject the faith, and they go as far away from God as they possibly can. Well, when they're old, they're going to come back to the Lord. That's the promise. That's not the promise. It's a proverb. It's a probability. More than likely, I mean, you'll have better odds of raising Christian kids if you raise them as Christian kids. You'll have Christian adults. But it's not a rock rib guarantee. So if you have children that are going the wrong way, don't pin your hope on a proverb. You pin your hope on prayer. You pray, you pray for them. You, you lash them to the throne of God in prayer. You pray for them like a crazy person. You pray for them like their life depends on it. You pin your hope on God's word, that his word will not return void. You, you, pray, you pray in light of God's tenacious love, that God doesn't give up. And God is gracious and he is merciful and he is powerful and he is sovereign. So you pray in other ways, but you don't, you don't pin your hopes on a proverb. It's not a rock-solid guarantee. It's a proverb. So all proverbs are true and inspired, but they're not absolute promises. Here's another one. Proverbs about God's nature are always true. They are absolute. They are kind of guarantees or, or, or promises in that sense because God's nature doesn't change. Uh, let's go to Proverbs chapter 3, for example. In Proverbs 3 and verse 12, Proverbs 3.12, For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. God doesn't change. God corrected his children a thousand years before Christ. The writer of Hebrews says the same thing in the time of Christ and is still true today. God doesn't change. What was true of them once upon a time is still true of God today. Our God doesn't change. Or in uh, chapter 5 and verse 21, Chapter 521, the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. God is sovereign. You cannot get out from under the gaze of God. All things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You, there's nothing that is hidden from the eyes of God. He is he's sovereign. That doesn't change. That's a, that's a rock rib guarantee right there. That's a promise. Or in chapter 6, in verse 16, chapter 6, 16, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yea, seven, which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, that's pride. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. God hated those things 3,000 years ago. He still hates those things today because God's nature doesn't change. So there's the, the, those proverbs about God's nature, they're always true. They are absolute. Here's another principle. When studying Proverbs, ask, what is the main point? When you're looking at a proverb, ask the question, what is the main truth? What is the essence of this proverb? What, what is this proverb encouraging me to do? Or what is this proverb warning me against? What's, what's the main point? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Many, many of us have memorized that. That's, there's a lot first. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not into thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths, or he will make your paths straight. So the point of that proverb, 
live by faith. Trust God, believe God, love God, follow God, and God will lead you. So there's, 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 there's the encouragement. That's the point of that proverb. Or Proverbs 20 and verse 1. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. Whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. That's a warning, isn't it? Better watch out for the booze. Better watch out for alcohol. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. It will deceive you and it will destroy you. You better be careful. Watch out for it. So what is the main point, the, the intent of the proverb? Watch it, watch and see. And then go slow. Here's another principle. Go slow. You've got to go slow through Proverbs. Justine and I are on a, on a reading plan. We're reading the Bible all the way through again together. And when you're on a read the Bible through in a year, I mean, you've got to take pretty good little chunks every day. And if you get behind, oh, goodness gracious, now you've got big chunks to go through. Well, if you get behind in the book of Proverbs and you've got to read nine chapters in one day, you're wasting your time. You can't rush through Proverbs. You've got to go slow. Proverbs are these little nuggets, and, you, and you've got to look at it from all angles, and it's like a cow chewing its cud. I mean, you just got to take one in, and you just got to chew on it and suck on it and meditate on it and savor it for a while, look at it from all angles. How have I seen this proverb in my life? How have I seen this play out in other people's life? How have I experienced this proverb? And just dwell on it. You've you got to go slow. Now, I preach out of the New American Standard. It's my favorite Bible translation. But for Proverbs, it's not my favorite translation. And for Proverbs, I'd recommend reading several translations, especially the newer ones that are easy to read. NIV, NLT, or ESV. It sounds like alphabet soup. sounds like a government agency. <laughs> but some of the newer translations. Here, listen to that proverb in several different translations, and it'll give you a different flavor of it. But... You've got to go slow. You can't rush through Proverbs. And then some Proverbs are situational. Know that some, some Proverbs are situational. It just kind of depends. Look at Proverbs 26. Proverbs 26. Proverbs 26 and verse 4. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be lacking. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he be not wise in his own eyes. Oh, well, now wait a minute. Which is it? Contradicting yourself. Do you answer a fool according to his folly, or you don't answer a fool according to his folly? Which one is it? Well, it kind of depends. And part of wisdom is knowing which way to go. What proverb, how to use this proverb in this situation. That's the better part of wisdom. In fact, Proverbs 26, 7 says, like the legs which are useless to the lame, so is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Now you understand this outside of the book of Proverbs. Too many cooks spoil the broth. Have you ever heard that one? Too many cooks spoil the broth. You don't need too many cooks in the kitchen. Too many cooks spoil the broth. On the other hand, many hands what? Make light work. Well, now, which is it? Do you want a lot of people helping in the kitchen, or you don't want a lot of people helping in the kitchen? Well, it depends on the cook. If it's my mother-in-law, no, you don't need a lot of help. You know, There's one way to cook it, and it's her way. That's the right way. She didn't want a lot of help cooking. But now when it's time to clean up, many hands make light work. kind of depends on the situation. Or, he who hesitates is lost. Have you ever heard that one? 
He who hesitates is lost. Think, snooze, you lose. He who hesitates is lost. You snooze, you lose. Or look before you leap. Look before you, well, now, which is it? Better jump in, get it while you can, or is it you better go slow, look before you leap, know what you're getting into? Which one is it? Depends on the situation. And wisdom says, which is it? Should I go slow and easy and careful, or you better grab it while you can? Which way does it go? So some proverbs are situational. And then respect the genre. Respect the genre. This is proverbial wisdom, not just for our series, but as you pick up the book of Proverbs at home, respect the genre. Proverbs are proverbs. Proverbs are a type of poetry. So expect figurative language. Expect hyperbolic, exaggerated language. Expect absolute statements. It's the nature of the genre. It's what proverbs look like and sound like. I'll give you an example, not in the Bible, but, it, but one we talked about a while ago. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. Now, is that literally true? If you eat one apple every day, you will never have to go to the doctor again. Oh, you know better than that. It's just a general principle. Well, you know, if you eat fruits and vegetables and if you eat a halfway good diet, then you're less likely to have to go to the doctor a whole lot. You get the idea. So you don't always take them literally. It's a, it's a genre. And then compare Scripture with Scripture. You can't just take one proverb and say, well, the Bible says... Well, you need to look at all the Proverbs and look at all of what the Bible says about whatever subject it is. What is the whole counsel of God about this subject? For example, in Proverbs 17, 8, it says this, A bribe is a charm in the sight of its owner. Wherever he turns, he prospers. Now, if you just take that one proverb, well, the Bible says you ought to bribe. It's a good way of, that's how you conduct business. A good businessman uses bribes. That's how you grease the skids. That's how you get things done. It's a charm to its owner. That's, that's the key to prosperity. You need to be a good briber. You read the rest of the Bible and you go, oh, no, <laughs> that's not what God's saying at all. The rest of the Bible, God's got some hard words to say about those who give bribes and take bribes. So you have to compare Scripture with Scripture. Proverbs is practical. The book of Proverbs is practical. And what we're going to find out is that the book of Proverbs deals with just about every area of life, every subject area of life. Anger, marriage, friendship, parenting, the fear of God, fools, money, work, pride, laziness, conflict, alcohol, our words, I mean, I, I just can't hardly think of a subject area that's not addressed somehow, some way in the book of Proverbs. It's just so practical. And then it's also helpful. The book of Proverbs is helpful. Raymond Orland said this, The book of Proverbs is practical help from God for weak people like us stumbling through daily life. It's his counsel for the perplexed, his strength for the defeated, his warning to the proud, his mercy for the broken. So I hope I've just kind of whetted your appetite a little bit for the book of Proverbs. There's a lot here. Now, I want to close with this. Let's go back to the theme verse, chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We'll talk more about that later, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You cannot have wisdom without knowing God. True wisdom, God's wisdom. You cannot have wisdom without knowing God, and you can't know God without Jesus Christ. It starts there. 
In fact, the New Testament says that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. In Him are hidden the treasures of, of knowledge and wisdom. You can't have wisdom without knowing God. You can't know God without Jesus Christ. Now, I didn't preach on this subject this morning, but I can't let you leave without telling you that Jesus loves you and he died for you. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, every one of us. All have sinned and fall short of his glory. All have sinned, and our sin carries a death sentence. Our sins have condemned us to an eternity apart from God. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and for mine. He paid our our penalty for our sins. He was buried. He was raised again. He is alive today. And he offers you the gift of eternal life, the forgiveness of sin. He offers you the gift. It's a gift. You don't earn it. You don't pay for it. You'll never deserve it. The church can't give it to you. You receive it by faith in Jesus Christ. And I invite you this morning, if you've never done so, to put your, heart, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Open your heart to him and say, oh, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I've, I've sinned against you. I deserve death and I deserve hell. I deserve your wrath. But I believe that you died for me and that you were raised again. I believe in you. Jesus, forgive me, save me, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you've never done that, I invite you to do that this morning. We'd love to help you with that. In a moment, we're going to stand up and sing our hymn of decision. I'll be right here. I invite you to come to me and say, Preacher, I need Jesus, or I want to be saved, or i got questions, or tell me more. And we'd love to talk with you privately and pray with you if you'd like to. But you could leave here today a child of God, knowing your sins are forgiven, heaven is your home, and Jesus is your Savior. We invite you to come. Maybe there's some other decision you need to make for Christ. Perhaps it's to join the church. If God has brought you here, we'd love to have you. You come, say, we want to join the church. We want to be a part of this fellowship. We'd love to have you. You come forward. Or perhaps to be baptized. We can talk about that. Or to pray with somebody. We invite you to come. Let's stand together quietly, reverently, and prayerfully. Father in heaven, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Proverbs. God, we thank you that you've not left us to figure it out for ourselves. You've not left us to our own devices. But being a good, gracious, loving God, you've given us your word, a revelation of yourself and your ways and your will. And you've shown us how we can live the best life possible. Lord, we understand that begins with you. That begins with Jesus Christ and I pray for the one who's never been saved. I pray that you bring them to the cross even today. Take charge of this time of decision, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.